in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder and violence. In a couple of past interviews, we've gotten insights from a criminal defense attorney from the southern part of the United States. Today, we're talking with him once more, this time about a case that has come to haunt him. We're referring to a case many refer to as America's Jack the Ripper. It's the Zodiac Killer, a serial murderer who preyed upon victims in Northern California in the late 60s and early 70s. Not only that, but he also teased and taunted the public, the press, and law enforcement with coded messages and ciphers. Our guest has been studying the case for over a decade and has many interesting insights and observations. And he has a unique perspective because, as he reminded us, he has represented clients who have been accused of doing acts very similar to what the Zodiac did. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. 
Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is The Zodiac Killer, an overview of the case. Can we start by having you give us just a brief overview of the crimes of the Zodiac? Yes. Uh, the Zodiac Killer was a, a serial killer uh, who uh, operated in the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 1960s. And he was um, he's kind of the, uh, the stereotypical Lover's Lane killer, uh, except for one stark difference. Uh, but in so there are four canonical events. That's how the Zodiac research community kind of, uh, they, they classify it. Um, there are four events that uh, almost everybody agrees is the work of one serial killer. And the first of those was a, a lover's lane killing of a, of a young couple on December 20th, 1968 in Benicia, California, uh, which is, uh, at the, that time was an, I think was an unincorporated area, uh, Southeast of Vallejo. July 4th of 1969, another uh, couple uh, were at a park and in Vallejo and were shot. The female died and the male lived. And uh, we'll, we'll come back and talk about details on these, but just given a chronology. Um, and then on September 27th of 1969, there was uh, an attack at a lake north of the San Francisco Bay Area, just north northeast of uh, Napa, California, at Lake Berryessa, and uh, again, two two individuals were attacked, uh, and this time it was by knife. The first two times it was gunshots, and uh, and again the female died and the male lived. And then on October 11th of 1969, a cab driver by the name of Paul Stein was uh, killed in his cab in San Francisco proper. And uh, those are the, uh, the the confirmed or, or the, the the accepted um, canonical events that comprise the uh, the Zodiac killings. And um, what what made it famous and what kind of tied them together was his he had a propensity to to taunt police and newspapers by mailing things and uh, taking credit for the killings and the fact that they were that they had not been solved. And so those are the four events. There are many others that uh, since that time have been uh, tied to the Zodiac case with varying degrees of, uh, of, of acceptance. But, uh, but those are the four main events that are fairly ex- well accepted in the community. Without going into too much detail, could you tell us a bit about how you 
became interested in this case? Well, it's, it's pretty obvious now. This is my third time talking to you about different true crime events. I was uh, have grown up uh, as, as from a young age being very interested in true crime before it was even called a true crime you know, community. It, and so I was interested in Jack the Ripper and you know those sort of things from an early age. And as I grew older, I, you know, it's a form of entertainment in a way to, to, to examine these kind of cases. But it's also uh, for for me, it's a it's a, a way to uh, buttress the work that I do. It makes me think carefully about the cases that I have in real life uh, by reviewing some of these older cases. And so I was familiar with Zodiac and had actually already been to a couple of websites uh, years previous to my real interest developing. And uh, mostly at first I was fascinated by the ciphers that he had mailed and particularly the uh, 340 being unsolved. Uh, and we could, we'll talk about that later. But that cipher was unsolved and I thought I could figure out a way to solve it. And so that interested me early on. But then uh, what happened was I, I just kind of stumbled on to quite by accident a person that I thought fit a lot of the characteristics of the Zodiac killer uh, who, after doing quite a bit of research on him, I, I'm still not dissuaded from my view. And so once I discovered this person and his potential link to the case, I just became more and more interested and, and started um, going to all the websites, uh, getting all the books and reading all of the ones that I could, that I could find. Um, and in particular, Tom Voigt and Mike Morford have some websites that are really good and contain a lot of good information on them. And I spent a lot of time on those two websites by uh, reviewing uh, the information that was there. As our guest mentioned, he does indeed have his own suspect in the case. We are not asking him about who that person is because our guest will someday probably reveal his thinking in detail in a book. Meanwhile, he has a great many other insights and observations to share with us. You talked a little bit about the ciphers. Can you talk a little bit more about that and say, what exactly are those? Well, a uh, cipher is a, you know, and I'm not, I'm no expert on, on this kind of stuff, but uh, I know there's a difference between a cipher and a code, but I couldn't quite tell you what. But uh, basically what ended up happening is that the person who uh, titled himself as the Zodiac in, uh, sent um, some coded or, or enciphered in, uh, messages that uh, supposedly were, uh, you know, it, it various times he, he said they would do different things if you could solve them. But um, the very first one was a 408-character cipher that he split up into three parts and mailed to three different newspapers and and uh, basically was engaging in some uh, – in, in, uh, he, was, he was trying to coerce the newspapers to print this by saying he was going to kill some people if, if they didn't print it. And eventually all three did print it. And, uh, but it was in three separate parts, and you had to put it together to make a single coded message. And um, that uh, that message was uh, in co- uh, decoded or decrypted very quickly. Um, but he also um, he did uh, a, a couple of other short ciphers that are almost going to be impossible to ever solve. But the, the, the one that is probably the most famous is what they call the 340, and that is a 340 character cipher that was that was mailed. Uh, and I, I forget where he mailed that one exactly, but it remained unsolved or un, un, undecoded for uh, over 50 years. And it is uh, it's particularly interesting that, you know, there there were efforts made by uh, lots of, uh, you know, the NSA, for example, as I understand, the CIA, different organizations took a stab at trying to figure out what this code was and, and their, you know, computer methods to, to analyze things like this. And you can see... 
or they could see that there was there was information in the code. It wasn't just a ram, rambling, jumbled bit of mess to confuse people. There was information, there, but they just couldn't decode it. And that, to me, is incredibly fascinating because that means that the Zodiac Killer was somebody who was smart enough to make a code that could not be decoded or ciphered, unciphered, undeciphered for over 50 years by some of the best minds that do that kind of work. Um, and so that's one of the things that was just really fascinating to me about him. But so, in, but uh, there was a, a team of three uh, researchers who uh, were independent researchers who were in the Zodiac community, basically. And uh, it was uh, middle of last year, maybe, I think, that they, they finally were able to, to break that cipher. And uh, there wasn't much uh, of, of other than just bragging and boasting about how great of a serial killer he was and how nobody would catch him. That sort of was the message. But it's just uh, it was interesting that, that it lasted so long before anybody was able to figure out uh, how to uh, get the information out of that cipher. There is a 13-character cipher that, that remains unsolved to this day, and as I understand it, it's probably too short to, to ever be reliably uh, decoded. Um, and then there's a 32-cipher message that was also sent at some point. And there have been... Um, a number of other ciphers that it's not entirely sure whether the uh, Zodiac Killer sent them or whether it was somebody else. And some of those have been deciphered and some have not. You mentioned, I mean, you could certainly say, you can certainly understand why people have been so intrigued with this case, you know, given the ciphers and given, you know, the possibility that somebody could crack them and whatnot. Um, one thing I'm curious about is, and this is probably the first question a lot of, you know, people who are new to the Zodiac case ask um, how can we be totally certain that the canonical cases are, are all the same person? Um, is there any specific physical evidence or or other evidence linking them definitively? It is a very frustrating set of crimes to uh, to look into from a, a layperson's perspective because even fifty three, fifty four years later, we, the the files of the law enforcement investigation agencies has has not they've not been released publicly um and so we don't know everything that they know um you know there are the but basically what ended up happening is that with each passing murder there was some form of communication that is reliably from the zodiac that was uh that referenced the other crimes and so he was basically taking um he was he was taking ownership of each passing crime after the second murder in July of 1969, he made a phone call from a payphone to the police department and, uh, and said, uh, uh, it, there's no recording supposedly, but, but he said to the operator that he wanted to report a double murder at the, at the park. And he was also the person that killed the two kids this, uh, the winter before. And so he took credit for it during his reporting of the second crime but there were also it, it's a each particular murder would require looking at all of the communications that were sent. But he he would give away either by telephone or in writing information that was true but not publicly released about previous crimes. Um, and and another famous example is that in nineteen uh, in the September nineteen sixty nine case at Lake, Lake Berryessa, he wrote in some sort of marker on the door of the male who survived that event. He wrote on the door of, the, uh, of, of his car, 
dates that corresponded to the previous two incidents and described how they had occurred by gun and, and then in this case by knife. Um, it's just, uh, and you know, there's, I think there's probably a lot more that we, that the public doesn't know about that connects it, but it's just through a series, the series of his communications that, that it is fairly reliable, uh, reliably, uh, uh, placed upon him that he did all four of those canonical events. Yeah. Interesting. I've always, I've always wondered that because I haven't immersed myself in the Zodiac case like you have, or, or like some people have, but the MOs being somewhat different and then the fact that this was also highly publicized, it sort of seems like it would be easy to start, you know, making claims in letters without actually having carried out, you know, all of the crimes, um, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But and there are some researchers in the community who believe they were four or maybe three unrelated events and t- two of them were together and the other two were not. But, that, but I don't think that that, that really holds water. And I, I think that, um, you know, you're exactly right. The fact that the MOs were so different makes it seem like there's there there could it could be that they weren't connected. But if you if you detect the pattern in the, of the writing, what he referenced, what he talked about, what information that wasn't really public at the time, it's fairly certain that all four of these were were the work of one killer. And uh, the, the most fascinating, of course, which we know that was the Zodiac was uh, there was a letter that was written in October of 1969 and received by the, uh, I believe it was the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle, within maybe two days of the murder of Paul Stein, the cab driver. And the letters were examined, that letter was examined compared to other letters, and it was conclusive that, according to the, you know, as conclusive as that sort of thing can be, that it was written by the same person who had written the previous letters, but included in that letter was a piece of a bloody shirt that, had been torn away from the body of the, of the cab driver and it was included in the mailing. So we, you know, the ma- pattern matched and, and it, there are pictures that show that his shirt was definitely torn. And you know, so we know that that person who wrote the previous letters definitely as definite as we could know something like this definitely was the murder of, of the cab driver. So there's just lots of little details that you have to add up all together to, to come to that conclusion that they're all four connected. Right. Mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on The Murder Sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free-to-download hidden object game, June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, it's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And, and then you mentioned, you know, there's been attempts in years since to basically link other crimes um, to, to this kind of series. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. um, do you find any of those other possi possible linked crimes particularly credible as as far as you know possible zodiac kills um there are several that are that are really interesting the first of those to arise chronologically speaking the first non-canonical crime that seemed to uh, have been connected to to zodiac was one that zodiac actually took credit for uh, at, at least obliquely in some some of his letters to uh to the chronicle um and um and that, that is the 1966 murder of Sherry Joe Bates in Riverside, California. And, uh, you know, geographically speaking, Riverside and San Francisco, you know, they, they are a lot further apart than they sound. California is a very large state, and it's, it would take hours to drive today between those two locations. And, uh, in fact, um, uh, investigators flew from San Francisco down to Los Angeles to talk to the investigators down there that, you know, so it's a long way away and separated only by two and a half, three years. Um, but, um, but there was a, a newspaper article that was, had been written saying that, that the, um, uh, the murder of Sherry Joe Bates seemed to be very similar to the, to the murders in San Francisco. And then Zodiac responded by taking credit obliquely, at least for that murder. Um, and that one seems like it, it is connected in some way, um, you know, my own personal theory is that he that he that he didn't murder her, but he was aware of it and he was in that area. But um, and that's based on information that I've uncovered on my own research. But but it seems like he 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 was aware of that particular murder. There are a couple of other events that occurred prior to the canonical um, Zodiac murders, and there's a, a, a June of 1963 murder on uh, the beach near Santa Barbara. Um, a couple of high school students had gone uh, on a senior skip day um, down to the beach uh, from, from Lompoc, which was where they were going to school. And they ended up being shot to death on the beach and had gone missing for, you know, they, they were missing for a while. They were discovered. And then as the investigation into that unsolved murder unfolded, they made connections between it and, the murders in the San Francisco Bay area. And there are investigators in that case who have said that they are convinced that it was the same person based on information that's not been publicly released. But it, it, that particular murder does bear an uncanny resemblance to what happened in Lake Berryessa 
also on a beach, basically. Two, two, two individuals were tied up with pre-cut lengths of rope at Lake Berryessa and in Santa Barbara. So those those two crimes seem very similar, and, and lots of people who have inside knowledge seem to think that they are connected. And I think it, it's very possible that they are connected. There's a cab driver in Oceanside in 1961 who was murdered, and there were taunting phone calls made both before and after that murder. And so that's, another, that's an M.O. of the Zodiac Killer. And so that, that could also be connected, and I'm agnostic about that one personally, but it, it very well could be. Um, but uh, And then there were some events that occurred after uh, the, the Zodiac Killer canonical spree ended. In March of 71, I believe that a, a lady was, uh, was driving on the highway. Uh, her name is Kathleen Johns. It was late at night. She had a baby, and uh, somebody flashed their lights at her from behind it, it, in an attempt to get her to pull over. They said, hey, you're, you know, it looks like your wheel's going to fall off. I'll fix it for you. And that person did fix it for her, uh, allegedly. And as she drove off, the wheel fell off. And so he said, well, just get in the car with me, and I'll, I'll take you to, to safety. And uh, according to her story, she ultimately, after riding around with him, for, for depending on which version you believe, uh, a few uh, few minutes to up to several hours, she jumped out of the car with the baby. And then when she reported the incident, she uh, at the police department, she pointed to a sketch uh, of the Zodiac killer and said, "That's the man that that tried to kidnap me." Um, that one falls outside of the MO, in my opinion. If, uh, if there's no abductions that we, other than that, that we know of, that is canonical, so that one seems a little bit less likely in my mind. But then and the other one that that is uh, that, that I think is could potentially be a Zodiac crime is. The abduction of a 25-year-old nurse at her employment in State Line, Nevada, which is basically a straight shot from San Francisco through Sacramento over to, to Nevada. And um, what's interesting about her, she, she went to work and she just uh, disappeared. She didn't come home um, and nobody saw her after she had finished her shift. And um, what, what's really interesting is she worked at uh, at a hospital in San Francisco that was within a mile of the location where the cab driver had been shot and killed in, in uh, October of 1969. And her abduction was in September of 1971. So uh, almost two years later, she was abducted and never heard from again. And Zodiac, again, he's very oblique in the way he references things, but apparently it, it, you know, some people take some of one of his communications to mean that he uh, was taking credit for her abduction. That one seems like they're, it is more likely of a Zodiac crime as an abduction than the Kathleen Johns abduction because um, because she at least had a connection to that area and, and there's not really uh, to the area where Zodiac had been operating and there's not really a, a real solid connect between Kathleen Johns and the Zodiac uh, prior to that. So, uh, but there but there are and then you know depending on what website you're looking at, you can you can also connect. Uh, you know, some of the most famous unsolved cases of, of all U.S. history. But, uh, but those are the ones that seem most likely to have some sort of a connection to the Zodiac Killer. Absolutely. I mean, and, the, you know, what you're describing, just the sheer amount of crimes, but, you know, I mean, the possibility, the possibly linked as well as the canonically linked. Um, what did this spate of crimes do to the area in which they occurred at the time? I mean, as you mentioned, there's this media connection 
there's are there these taunting letters to the media and law enforcement, you know, all these brutal cases. Um, can you kind of describe the societal impact that this case had? Well, you know, it's funny. I'm I'm an old guy now. I feel like, um, and I'm I'm starting to look into retirement plans and figure out what I'm going to do when I no longer practice law and that sort of thing. And I wasn't even born when the Zodiac killing happened, um, when that spate of crimes occurred. And so, you know, obviously, I don't have any firsthand knowledge, but but the, the you know, I've done a lot of reading of newspaper articles from that time, and and it terrified the community. And particularly, what um, what terrified them was the boldness and the brashness of, of taking credit for the crime, committing the crime, and, and basically bragging that you're not going to catch me. That was the tone of his communication. And, um, you know, one of the reasons why people do investigate other crimes to figure out if they may be connected um, is because one of the things that he did was at the bottom of his communications, he had a running scorecard. He would put um, – of the Zodiac symbol that he created and he would have a number next to it. And I, I think the largest number he ever got to was 37. Uh, later he put guess, um, and SFPD zero, you know, he was taunting the police and taunting the community with the idea that he's continuing to commit these co- commit crimes and get away with it. And the, and the San Francisco police department and other agencies there couldn't catch him. And so, one of the things that he did, I think he, he capitalized on that kind of terror because um, it, when he, he was almost, depending on whose version you believe, of course, but he was almost caught, I think, um, at the uh, the crime scene for the Paul Stein murder in, in uh, October of 69 in downtown San Francisco. And one of what some of his next communications were uh, describing how he was going to commit crimes against school bus, buses full of children. And that he was going to blow up bombs next to school buses and that he was going to shoot children uh, as they got off the school buses. And there were, you know, I know that, um, you know, I've seen newspaper uh, and uh, read newspaper articles, seen news uh, television accounts of it. It terrified the community. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm quite certain that, you know, as, as people were growing up, they were being told, don't go to the lover's lanes. Don't don't go to the to these secluded spots, because if you do, then there's potential that the Zodiac killer could, could get you. And it's, it had to have been a terrifying thing to, to live in that area and know that someone who is quite capable and willing to kill uh, would, was out there, not behind bars, and was not only killing, but bragging about it. Some of these crimes are just so heinous and, and disturbing. And then the fact that the person is bat- bragging about it, taunting the police. Um, you know, what can we extrapolate from that about what kind of person would do this personality, you know, maybe a, a bit of a profile of, of what this kind of person would look like or, you know, be like, I guess. Well, you know, there are books and articles and all kinds of things that have been written that suggest various different profiles. Some people think that he was, um, had particular personality traits and then other professionals think he had the exact opposite. But I think that this is for me personally, based on the reading that I've done and, um, and, and, you know, frankly, representing people who have been charged with some crimes like this, it seems like he was somebody who had a personal vendetta against law enforcement for some reason. There is a theory that maybe he was, had applied to become a law enforcement officer and was rejected for whatever reason. But, the fact that he would put SFPD and in a, in a, in a zero at the bottom of many of his letters 
suggested that it was personal for him. Um, I also think that the fact that, you know, it, the acceptance of some of the non-canonical crimes would influence how you view him and his personality. Um, because if, you know, the, the, the murder of Sherry Joe Bates was a, was a just one female individual killed. And with the exception of that and um, the, uh, the Paul Stein killing, the ones that I think are most likely connected are, were all groups. There were, there, were, there were couples involved. And that, to me, suggests that there was some kind of, 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 of angst about relationships and about how men and women relate to each other. And there, you know, famously, one of the uh, police chiefs there said that he was that he was probably exhibited homicidal or homicidal homosexual violence. And um, you know, there there may be a, a a questioning of his own sexuality that was involved. But I, I think that there had to be some sort of self doubt there uh, about and, and questioning his own self worth for him to uh, to drive around and shoot people who were engaging in activities that he probably wasn't able to for whatever reason. That's, that's what it feels like to me is, is that he's that kind of person. But then he not only did he have to do that to express his own inner rage at not being able to be, to find some sort of romantic or sexual fulfillment, you know, he, he then had to, he coupled that with an independent desire to, uh, to engage in a vendetta against law enforcement and say, not only, Am I doing these murders? Uh, but I'm also evading capture, and uh, so I think it fulfilled a couple of different things. And the more he did it, and the more he got away with it, the more confident he became as a person. I think, you know, there's a, a fairly well accepted idea that serial killers just don't just stop, and in reality, we know that is not true. They do stop. They have reasons for stopping. Though, if you look at Gary Ridgeway, he stopped when he when he got married and was ha- having a, a good successful marriage and when that marriage crumbled he, he resumed the green river killings btk stopped for a good long time and it they serial killers stop when the the need to do the killing is satisfied some other way and uh and personally i believe that zodiac probably you know there's 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 ideas that he that he uh he went to prison he was in a mental hospital he died he went to the military went overseas you know there's all kinds of reasons to explain why he stopped but apparently um, continued to live because there were communications that occurred for years after the canonical events ceased. But my, my own personal thought on that is is that he gained so much confidence from engaging in the killings and then not getting caught that it gave him confidence to move on in life and do some other things that were accepted you know, and legal, things that would satisfy whatever urge he had uh, to kill, but do it in a way that was, that was not illegal. And so I think he was probably somebody who was just uh, uh, shy uh, and, and it, not very self-confident. But as the, the events occurred, went on, as they uh, continued, he, he gained more and more confidence. And that's why, you know, and if you look at there are patterns that, that really kind of help explain events and um, uh, in general, but in, specifically with the Zodiac, you see the first crime he did not in December 20th, 1968, he didn't called anybody he didn't write anybody he just shot a couple of kids and nothing else happened and he got away with it for several months and then july rolls around of the next year and he kills uh he shoots a couple of 
people, the female dies and the male lives, but he thought he had gotten, he had managed to kill both of them. And he has to make, he drives to a payphone within a mile. Uh, from what I understand, it's, you can see the police department from the payphone where he, where he made the call. And uh, calls and not only brags about that crime, but about the crime that he committed the year before. So it shows an increase in confidence that he would not make any public statements at all about the first crime and then go to the second crime and take credit for both of them. Because he feels like at this point, I can get away with both of them. I can get away with all of it. Now, I want people to know how great I am as a serial killer. And so I'm going to go in and take credit for it, for, for both of them. And, and he had not even at, at that point even written any letters. And so the, the letter writing campaign actually began, and then it sort of uh, seemed to replace the actual homicide. He, he, the letter writing gave, gave, apparently got, gave him the satisfaction uh, the terrorizing of the community gave him the satisfaction that he was looking for and had received previously by committing the murder. And there are, there are so many letters. If you, you know, if you read the letters, you can just kind of get a, a, a sense of the tone. And as he goes on, it's just an increasing confidence and an increasing need for attention. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. And I mean, like, gosh, I mean, this this is kind of the obvious question that pops into your head. But I mean, these murders are so bold. He's, you know, and then he's, you know, continuing to communicate. Um, We all know that, you know, BTK ran into trouble when he uh, started started corresponding with police again, you know, in in the early 2000s and led to, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. situation where he was sort of trapped into a. (laughs) <laughs> making a huge technological mistake, but how, I mean, how did the Zodiac not get caught? I, that's my question. I mean, it, it, you know, he's, he's styling himself as, as this criminal genius, but a lot of this stuff seems like 
it would have been cracked if he tried this today because of advances in forensic technology. But what what sort of benefited him back when he was committing these crimes? It, well, what benefited him was is that he was one of the first. You know, there there were there had been previous uh, serial killing kind of sprees. There were things that happened. There was the Axeman of New Orleans, and you know, the Black Dahlia, Dahlia was a was a famous event in, in uh, Los Angeles. There were things that had occurred previously, and the cases that had gone unsolved. But um, but he was really the first one uh, in the United in the United States anyway that wrote letters and took credit for it, and and, and you know, basically invited uh, the, uh, the the reviewing of his crimes that he committed. And today, you know, there's almost everybody, I think, in the, in the Zodiac community believes that if these events were occurring today, he'd, he'd be caught very quickly. And, uh, of course, there's technology that would enable that uh, that is, exists today that didn't exist back then. You've got surveillance cameras, cell phones, and, and your vehicles have tracking devices, whether you, you know, with, from the manufacturer that are placed there. There's all kinds of technological advances that would make it so much easier to catch him today. Um, but um, the, uh, you know, the internet didn't exist back then. And the, the uh, linking crimes across jurisdictional boundaries was a much larger problem back then than it is today. And I don't think it was by accident that all of the canonical crimes and even all of the non-canonical crimes that are loosely associated with Zodiac Killer are all uh, in, in different jurisdictions for law enforcement purposes. But no single, uh, there were there were no two events that were investigated by one single law enforcement agency, primarily. Um, and even uh, Vallejo and Benicia were, even though they're only separated by a couple of miles, those two locations, uh, they were uh, primarily responsible uh, agencies were two different agencies. And so the uh, Vallejo Police Department, Napa, or um, the uh, the Paris Park, Solano County. The fact that it was one of the first instances where people were trying to investigate multiple events but were not aware of the existence of or potential link to other crimes, um, you know, in another county over, another city over. I think that that was a big thing that helped him. Um, and, of course, you know, there are a lot of advances in DNA DNA technology did not exist in 1968 and 69. Uh, so even though there are lots of crimes that are being solved today through the use of various forms of DNA technology, um, it would have required properly uh, storing the, the evidence that was collected and proper collection as well. And I just don't think that that occurred in this case. And so there, there is DNA work being conducted, as I understand it, into into this case to this day. But if these crimes, those crimes had happened today, he would almost certainly have been caught through DNA, if nothing else. But you know, it was just an earlier time uh, in our in our in the world of criminal justice, and there was there were less sophisticated techniques to use to solve these crimes. Uh, there was less opportunity for law enforcement to actually lay eyes on the person. Um, because of the different, you know, the no surveillance cameras basically existed at that point. And uh, it was going to be a luck of the draw kind of thing for them to see him in the, in the midst of committing the action. So it's, it was just basically happenstance, I think, that he, was, he just happened to be operating at a time when law enforcement techniques were not sophisticated enough to, to catch him. We found in, like, cases we've looked into, like, for example, the Burger Chef murders, um, mm-hmm. that's a situation where, 
you know, one law enforcement body thinks it's suspect A, the the other one thinks it's B and then C. And like you go down the line and everybody has a totally different opinion. And, you know, in other situations, it's actually like more a little bit more cut and dry. You have like everybody be like, we're pretty sure it's this guy, but we can't prove it. And I'm just curious, do you know if there's any sort of official thought on, um, you know, from law enforcement? Is there any sort of indication that they think it's somebody or do you think that they're probably pretty open minded at this point? Well, I've personally communicated with a number of law enforcement officers who are uh, currently assigned or at the time I communicated were assigned to investigating Zodiac. And I'll tell you, based on the research I've done and my communication with them, they are very tight lipped about what they believe. Um, and I think that some of that uh, jurisdictional jockeying that was occurring in the in the late 60s and early 70s investigating this case has continued to this day. Um, I think that uh, there is no real theory about who committed these crimes unless it, they are just holding it uh, completely close to the vest and not disclosing any information at all. I don't think that there is uniformity amongst the law enforcement agencies about who did it or, or, or where, uh, you know, what happened or, or any of those things. I think that they're cooperating now uh, much more than they were. And the, the investigation, uh, the FBI actually helped at some point uh, and then in the California Bureau of Investigation or, or Department, of, Department of Justice, whatever it is out there, their state agency um, got involved and has a case. And it's, I, I understand it is still an active case. And so they sort of had to, uh, those local law enforcement agencies had to cooperate because the state agency and the FBI were getting involved. So there was, there is, has been a minimal amount of cooperation, and I think that they are probably cooperating more now than they ever were. But I don't think that any of these agencies really at this point have a clue who the Zodiac Killer was. And that's interesting because when you go on websites and stuff, you see a lot of people putting forth suspects. Do you just mm-hmm. as an educated... Uh, follower of the case, do you have an opinion about some of the more prominent suspects that have been mentioned? Well, the suspects seem to fall into two categories. The suspects that have been developed, at least in the modern era and from the late 80s moving forward, they fall into two categories. Number one, the my daddy did it category or the this guy was you know, close to that, to that location. So he must've done it. And he was kind of weird category. So, you know, um, by and large, I'm, I don't really find much that, um, compels me to believe any of the suspects that have been publicly identified as suspects are in fact the Zodiac. There's, you know, basically what you have is that some people look like the sketches, uh, and the best example of that is uh, Earl Van Best. Um, you know, he, he he is a suspect that's been identified, and he looks like the Zodiac Killer. But beyond that, there's almost no evidence. I mean, and he was, you know, not a not a nice guy. Apparently, he committed some crimes, but um, but there's not really anything that ties him to the crime other than he looks like Zodiac. And by and large, that seems to be the first criterion that any independent investigator uses to evaluate uh, a suspect. And I mean, frankly, even I did that whenever I, I, I stumbled upon somebody that I thought was Zodiac. That's, that was the first thing that struck me was the appearance. Um, but I think you have to have more than just an appearance. And, uh, you know, some are laughable and some are more credible than, than, uh, uh, than that. But 
by and large, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody has publicly identified the person who really was a Zodiac as the Zodiac killer. Um, in terms of, I mean, are there any other, I guess, maybe misconceptions or myths about this case that you think have pervaded the public mindset? Well, I think that the various announcements that the Zodiac case has been solved is probably more accepted by the by the public than than it ought to be. Um, you know, like I said, I'm I'm getting near in retirement age, and I wasn't even alive at that point. So the, the people that were alive, and especially people alive and were adults at that time, is becoming a vanishingly small number of people. So uh, about the actual events, I don't know that there are many misconceptions about the events, but I think that the random person who knows anything about Zodiac would, I think, conclude that it's been solved, and it is not at all solved. Um, but it's the confidence with which the various researchers and groups announce, you know, breathlessly, oh, we've solved Zodiac, you know, and people accept it without really looking into the claims that they're making. And I think that that's probably, I don't know if maybe, you know, between uh, that misperception and t- time passing, I think those two things are going to end up with uh, forcing these law enforcement agencies into spending their time and resources on other projects uh, that are, you know, more in the public eye um, uh, and, and closer in time to us today than the Zodiac. And so at some point, that kind of uh, public misperception is going to end up leading to Zodiac, the money drying up, resources drying up to solve Zodiac. And it's just not going to, I think that this, there's a, uh, a strikingly large possibility that Zodiac will never be solved because the public thinks it's already been solved. Absolutely. And I, I, you're preaching to the choir. I think a real healthy dose of skepticism would be a great thing for the true crime community when looking at claims. And I think it's one thing for a researcher to say, hey, here's a case against somebody that I feel, you know, pretty good about. But it's an, but sometimes in the press releases, you see it's like claiming a solve. That's a that's a huge mm-hmm. stretch. And it's kind of it's I mean, it's just misleading. And it, and as you said, it actually does harm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and and the, the most recent and just to, I, I hate to, you know, I don't I don't like disparaging anybody, but the most recent claim of that Gary Francis Post was the one that uh, that committed these crimes is so laughable on its face because of the, 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 the skimpy evidence that they have. And it's mostly, again, based on, well, he looks like Zodiac, so he's got to be it. And, uh, and yet it was announced with supposedly the backing of a, a number of distinguished law enforcement uh, officials. And so it just, once again, it's, it's laughable to those of us who are in the community that investigate this case, uh, that are on the website, that communicate back and forth amongst ourselves. It's laughable to think that Gary Francis Post was the man that committed this crime. And yet, I think that that's probably the number one candidate that people have texted and called me about and said, hey, it's solved. You're, you were wrong. Your guy wasn't it. You know, and, and it's just laughable uh, to think that somebody like that, based on the evidence that they have, anyway, was, was Zodiac. You mentioned the backing of a lot of prominent law enforcement people with that one. I think people in true crime, people who are listeners consuming true crime, there needs to be a step back from the halo effect because... I think, you know, in many in many areas, we acknowledge that people can have a good career and do a lot of good things, but be wrong about, you know, signing on to something. And I don't know. I just I think there's there's a lack of um, I think people need to be a little bit less credulous about about this kind of stuff. 
What were you going to say, Kevin? I, I was going to say, you've mentioned uh, your research and your uh, you have your own suspect. Do you anticipate making your research and your theories available to the public at some point? I anticipate it, um, and maybe that's why I've been looking into to my retirement plans, because real work kind of gets in the way of it. Um, I, I'm, I've been working on a book. I've been doing research for about 13 years now, um, and I, I kind of stumbled upon uh, a person who I think is uh, is a uh, is a good good candidate for being Zodiac. Uh, by I stumbled upon him by accident, and uh, mostly I was just trying to rule him out um, by gathering information. But thirteen years later, and, um, and a couple of trips to California later uh, to do research, I have not found anything that rules him out. So um, I'm uh, I've done quite a bit of research. I've done some uh, some drafts of, of a book. Uh, not fully complete, of course, but I, I need to find some time to, to devote to sit down and finish in that research. And I, if, uh, if 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 God lets me live long enough, then then yes, I, I will release that. Well, we'd love to. Hopefully, it'll be you know someday where you can come back on the show and 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 chat about it in depth because we'd love to have you back on to talk about that. Um, Absolutely, I'd love to. Yeah, and and then I guess you know in the meantime. What would you recommend for listeners who are curious and maybe really want to get into the Zodiac case and really be informed? Um, would you? Are there any books or resources that you found especially enlightening um, as far as kind of getting started in that space? Well, there are. Uh, the Robert Gray Smith was uh, a political cartoonist at uh, one of the newspapers in San Francisco who did a lot of research on the case, and uh, I'm not. I think it was in 1987 when he wrote his book. Um, and, and in the community, it's called The Yellow Book because the cover was yellow. And I, honestly, I don't even remember the name of the book. But um, that was the, the book that catapulted this into the, into the public knowledge, uh, the public uh, sphere of uh, where people really took notice of it. Uh, it was a, a, a really good movie that was directed by David Fincher called Zodiac. And some of that is... Um, is not exactly uh, historically accurate, of course, because it's a movie. But um, but it gives a good overview of, of the crimes and some of the uh, the personalities that were involved in it. Um, and um, but uh, but there are two two websites that I consult. Uh, and you know I save everything with bookmarks, so I I don't you know these are not my website. Uh, but uh, Mike Morford has one uh, zodiackillersite.com, I think. Um, and uh, Tom Voigt also has a website, and his last name is B O I G T. And uh, uh, his is on Tapatalks or Tapatalk or whatever that website is. But um, they, they both have it's it's kind of a message board format uh, that where people contribute information. And uh, you know, there's a lot of actual, real good investigation that goes on on those two websites. And uh, it's the information is categorized, you know, like a message board by by, by different categories, and uh, and it gives you an opportunity to to go and find information on a specific area that is being researched uh, by independent researchers. There, I'm sure there's a lot of other really good websites out there. I've heard of some other ones, um, and um, the, and there's of course a million podcasts that go into great depth. Uh, but those the, those two websites, the movie and the book uh, by Grace Smith, are probably the first things that I would suggest anybody go to uh, to, to get that has no knowledge of Zodiac at all to get started with, with the understanding that of course the movie is fictional, but but it gives a it gives a flavor of what what the whole thing is about. 
And then I'm curious, you know, why do you think this case continues to resonate today in 2023? There, well, the taunting uh, with the, the, the communications, um, that was what got it going, um, I think, in the, in the 70s and 80s. But, you know, and then the fact that it was uh, it, that there was popular it was popularized with the book and the in the movie that kept it going but you know another thing that that and some of my friends when i told them i'm coming on your your, your podcast again to talk about zodiac they said well how many hours are they gonna let you talk because i'm i'm trying hard not to get too deep into details but one of one of the things that we, we didn't talk about was at the lake Berryessa event he actually showed up with a costume that had apparently been very well designed uh, that had the zodiac symbol that he used when he signed his letters on emblazoned or maybe even in, embroidered somehow onto that costume. And uh, there's a pretty famous picture or, or drawing rather of what somebody uh, felt like it looked like. But um, the fact that he was so flamboyant in how he committed his crimes, how he took credit for those crimes, the fact that he was able to create ciphers that that lasted unsolved for so long, there's just, he's not your typical uh, serial killer who just kills for sexual pleasure and and dumps somebody, you know, in a a park somewhere. He did more than just killing. As a matter of fact, if you look at how much killing he did compared to how much writing and and other things that he did, it's pretty obvious that the killing was not the part that that, that he enjoyed the most. It was taking credit for being the killer that really made him uh, tick, I think. And so it's uh, being so flamboyant, it, it's, it's a it's tease of I'm right here, you can find me if you, if you want to, that the public looks at and says, why, why hasn't this already been solved? Those who, who, who don't think it's been solved anyway, why hasn't it been solved? And so as time has gone by, it's just all of these little factors of, I think that this is the first time I've ever used that word flamboyant to describe how he acted about his motive. But I think that's actually probably the, the answer there, that why it's, it was it was publicly displayed in such a flamboyant way that he not only did the murder, but he got away with it. Um, and it was uh, almost he's almost cartoonish in a, in a way with, with with his costume and with some of the, the writing the ciphers and that sort of thing. And so I think there is, um, you know, He's not. There's this strain of thought um, that we sort of romanticize some uh, people who are criminals. You know, in the in the in the um, depression era, of, and back in before that, when you had the um, uh, prohibition, you know, Dillinger and, and folks like that who robbed the banks to take money away from the rich to give the poor. That's you know the Robin Hood kind of thought process. People somewhat idolized those people, even though they knew they were doing wrong. And then you had Alcatraz, where the three guys escaped and were never found. And, you know, people were in, in a lot of ways hoping they got away. Just because, you know, it's putting a thumb in the eye of, 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 of the man, you know. And and you got to remember, this was the late 60s in San Francisco. And so there was, I think that Zodiac was trying to take advantage of that tendency of people to somewhat back the underdog and so to speak and i think in some ways even though his acts were far more despicable than most of these other people that i've just talked about uh there i think he kind of 
managed to, to achieve that. And then I imagine there's so much that we did not ask about that you wanted to cover, but maybe, maybe oh, we could do, yeah. <laughs> do some follow-up <laughs> interviews, but is there anything, <laughs> what were you going to say? Yeah, no, there, I mean, I literally could talk for hours and, <laughs> you know, I think today was a, a pretty good uh, overview. Um, but I, I think that, you know, generally speaking, the, the, the important thing that, that when people think about Zodiac is that it's, to understand Zodiac is, is really a psychological thing and to understand who he was and, and why these events happened. It's not your simple superficial sexual thrill or, or wanting to get some money kind of thing. He's, he was a very deep person, whoever he was, there was a lot to him. Um, and I think that, that he had many psychological needs that drove him to do what he did. And, um, and I think that, he was intelligent enough to use different techniques to get away with it. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's America's Jack the Ripper. It's always going to fascinate people. And if it remains unsolved, like Jack Ripper, but really is in my opinion, um, then it's going to always fascinate the public. And there's always going to be speculation and, and people are always going to inquire into it. Until it's finally solved. And when it is solved, whether it's my guy or some of the, uh, publicly named suspects, I think most everybody's going to say, just like we did with BTK, is that really the guy? Surely it's not. He's just so whatever. You know, it's not, I don't think there's going to be anything special about him. Um, I don't think it's going to be Ed Edwards, you know, that supposedly killed, uh, you know, committed all the unsolved crimes in, in the country. But it, it's, it, I think it's going to fascinate people to know who he is because I think there's going to be, uh, there's going to be some explanation behind it once we know who he is. But by and large, we're just going to look at him and think, I just, you know, who, who, who would have thought that was the guy? We want to thank our guest for talking with us. And he's making a special offer to listeners of The Murder Sheet. If any of you have questions or comments or theories about the case you'd like to discuss with him, then he is inviting you to contact him directly at ZodiacKillerHunter at Outlook.com. That's ZodiacKillerHunter at Outlook.com. And if you do write him, please join us in urging him to publish his book on the case soon. We are all anxious to read it. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murder sheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.